0: Welcome to the 298th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Wired Magazine writer Adam Rogers back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 24th, 2021, there are 3,892,782 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Brazil reports 507,109 deaths from COVID-19, and right now India is reporting 391,981 deaths from COVID-19 officially, though there is grave concern that that number is far too low. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a live story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Rajendra Kapila it was written by Sanjeet Bakhti and appeared in The Lancet Infectious Diseases. This is the issue which is coming out next month. Rajendra Kapila, the eminent infectious disease specialist, succumbed to COVID-19 during a visit to India on April 28, 2021. Rajendra Kapila, an eminent infectious disease specialist and professor at Rutgers University in the United States, died on April 28, 2021, in Delhi, India. He was diagnosed with COVID 19 on April 8, 2021, and died from the disease at an Indian hospital at the age of 81. Calling him a genuine giant in the field of infectious diseases, Rutgers University remembered his 50 years of service in taking care of thousands of patients and training a large number of medical students, fellows and residents at the University Hospital, New Jersey Medical School and the Martland Hospital. In a statement, the university also remembered Kapila's contribution as a globally recognized infectious disease specialist with phenomenal knowledge and sharpness in diagnosing and treating the most complex diseases. Kapila was the founder of the university's Division of Infectious Disease. He promoted the division's continued and substantial growth and development and helped establish it as one of the leading infectious disease programs in the United States. Also, he was a founding member of the New Jersey Infectious Disease Society and a recipient of the Excellence in Teaching Award from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. It is not an exaggeration to say that Dr. Rajendra Kapila was one of a kind. A true superstar, infectious disease clinician and educator, said Lisa Dever, professor and vice chair, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at Rutgers. I've been fortunate to know Dr. Kapila for over 30 years. The depth and breadth of his knowledge of infectious diseases and his generosity in sharing it was absolutely extraordinary. His impact will be long-lasting, she told The Lancet Infectious Diseases about Kapila. Deaver pointed out that he was the first and last person to go to for advice on difficult infectious disease problems. He literally taught thousands of students, residents, and fellows at the bedside and in teaching conferences and lectures. According to Deaver, Kapila's generosity in being available to teach others was truly remarkable. He was recognized for his clinical and teaching excellence by multiple awards. Kapila published more than 100 articles during his long career that made major contributions to the field, said Deaver. Seminal publications include the treatment of anaerobic pneumonias and the effectiveness of clindamycin. He was the first to suggest HIV-2 as a cause of AIDS in the United States in 1983, which led to changes in blood bank practices, she noted. Kapila graduated from the St. Saint- Xavier College in Kolkata, India, and did his MBBS at the Maulana Azad Medical College, New Delhi. He completed his residency at the Irwin Hospital, India. Then he went to the United States. There, he worked as an intern resident and fellow at Martland Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. Also, during the Vietnam conflict, Kapila worked as an assistant chief of medicine in the United States Army in Okinawa, Japan. 1973. He received his UMDNJ appointment, and in 1976, he also received the university hospital appointment. As an individual, according to the Rutgers University Statement, Kapila was a soft-spoken, smart, and humble person. However, he was helpful to other doctors and caring about humankind and his patients. Nugia Mittal, a medical student at the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, told The Lancet, Dr. Kapila was an extremely accomplished physician and academician known for his clinical acumen. I remember being in awe while watching him lead I.D. infectious round infectious disease rounds as he asked questions and brought up concerns no one even thought of. He was, however, not only a world renowned doctor, but also an amazing teacher who took the time to spread his vast knowledge, commented Mr. Mittal. He always encouraged asking questions, looking at the bigger picture and keeping up with the latest research, she recalled. I was privileged to have had the opportunity to be under his mentorship and hope that I can embody some of his qualities someday as a physician. Kila returned to India during the last week of March 2021 to look after his family and was scheduled to return to the United States by mid-April. Although he reportedly received the two doses of COVID-19 vaccine in the United States, the disease caught him in India in early April. He reportedly had diabetes and cardiac complications. He was admitted in the Shanti Mukund Hospital in New Delhi, where he succumbed to COVID-19 about three weeks after the diagnosis of the disease. He is survived by his wife, Deepti Saxena Kapila, and other family members. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm really happy to bring Adam Rogers back to COVID Calls. Let me introduce him. Adam Rogers writes about science for Wired magazine. Before coming to Wired, he was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and a reporter for Newsweek. He's the author of the New York Times science bestseller, Proof, The Science of Booze. And we're going to talk a lot about the many different articles that Adam Rogers has put up related to COVID and the strange world of COVID statistics and vaccines and anything else that comes to mind in our conversation. I'm really glad to bring you back. Adam, it's good to see you. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. And i uh, just like to, you know, for the record, I usually ask people where they're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there. And it will be very interesting to compare this to the last time I asked you that question, which was in March of 2020. So, where are you and how's it looking?
1: Uh, well, I'm in Berkeley uh, in the California Bay Area, uh, and it, where it is looking uh, <clears throat> astonishingly. And from the global perspective that you just laid out at the top of the show, uncharacteristically good. Um, you know, I, I, uh, it's a digression. I'm sorry to do this already. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles and, uh, I lived on the, in the Northeast on the Acela corridor in the United States and in, in Boston and Washington and in New York for about a decade and then came back to California. And the thing that, um, Californians and, and people who think about cities and policy in the United States often will argue about is whether California is a place that presages the future of the rest of the country or whether it's sui generis, whether it's just so weird that you can't really draw any conclusions about uh, the rest of the United States from what happens in California. And I, you know, here we are again. Like, uh, there's the the in northern in, in in San Francisco in the Bay Area the vaccination rate is like pushing up 70 up against 70% for mm-hmm. like both doses if you right. get one of those the the numbers of cases and deaths are very 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 low the um people are still despite that many wearing masks when they're indoors in public in public places around other people and not yelling at each other when they do that um it just uh you know it, it's it's I feel kind of spoiled um i have a uh I, uh, one of my children is under 12, will turn twelve this summer and so hasn't got vaccinated yet. and i'm I'm keenly aware that it's safer for my kid to be around um, in where we live now than to travel anywhere else, um, even in in most parts of California. So uh, on the one hand, it's terrific, but I but I'm really but I can hear how different it is in other places and other places in my own state, much less in the rest of the country, much less. In the rest of the world.
0: I think it's not a digression. I think it's a really interesting topic, and I'm glad you brought it up because when we talked last time, you were describing a situation of lockdown there that much of the country had not entered. That some parts of the country wouldn't enter until much later in the spring, if if at all. Unfortunately, some parts some governors decided never to do it. But you were really giving a sort of a postcard from the future for many of us when we when we talked. And so, I think it is a a great question. And to put it in that perspective, I don't know does it sharpen the question at all?
1: For, for sure. And and um, California was one of the first places. The Bay Area was one of the first places in California to say close it down. People need to go home. And and you know, did we figure out the the way to do that the most safely and the and the healthiest for everybody, in the way that accounted for the inequalities that the pandemic has revealed? in the United States and the rest of the world. I mean obviously like it wasn't perfect by any stretch. But you know I, I remember reporting about this at the time. Every every study of previous pandemics and previous outbreaks said the earlier and the harder you close, the sooner and the better you can open. You know the the the, the fewer economic consequences you suffer, the sooner you collapse the the disease, the maybe the less you have to deal with the 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 Opening too soon, and then you get another wave, and then you have to close again. I mean, you know, you remember the same paper I do, where the, where we first got to see the 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 wave, um, the wave forms, the sine wave of of outbreak collapse, outbreak, and and um, and so to to that extent, you know, it feels like that has happened here. It feels like that um, closing early and trying to do it hardcore was the right was the right decision. Um, we made decisions. State by state, and then at a federal level throughout 2020, uh, uh, that, that <laughs> where somehow it seemed plausible, in a way that I still find, because of my own predilections in politics, shocking, to say, well, sure, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, but what about commerce? You know, yeah. and 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 the thing that was the the thing that still astonishes me, and will I suppose continues to astonish me is not that that was even seen as parallel but that it was a false choice anyway that you could actually be that you would do better by an economy by by taking more aggressive uh, more proactive public health measures
0: some of the most aggressive versions of that kind of discussion even i remember like back in may um where they would wheel out some statistics to say see if you if the economy shrinks by this amount, this number of people will also die. So you're actually not accounting for that. And and just like you, I thought, wow, what a classic sort of false choice kind of thing. So we actually literally have to sacrifice the lives of these people, so we don't lose their lives on the other side of the equation. If we shut the factory down for two yeah, months, it, it was some Moloch stuff for a while there. Uh, totally. You
1: know, and I, and I I wrote about um, uh, the, the how you value um, a human life, the, the, you know, the way that it's done for risk benefit calculations in the United right. States is it's done different ways in other countries, the value of a statistical life, DSL. and, and, and literally trying to figure out what number you can put on a life to show really, and it's a complicated thing. And even the people who do it don't totally agree on what they really mean, but to figure out, well, how much money can we spend to save somebody? How much money are we saving by not saving them? You know, um, these really, um, they seem really cynical calculations, but I understand the, the premise at least. I understand the notion that if you're going to make policy, you have to make some decisions based on some stuff. And you, and and what you're really trying to do is um, use these numbers to figure out what your values are, what your capital V values are, I guess, as a society. And and uh, you know you have to you have to have a way to do that. And there are a bunch of different ways that you can do those calculations. But but um, you know but even but even if you're the most cold-hearted. Uh, you know, green eye shade accountant policymaker, there were still at the same time as these decisions being made, there were still calculations that said if we, that this is going to cost, the pandemic's going to cost $16 trillion in the United States. So anything that keeps it from costing $16 trillion is worth it, you know, and that still, that wasn't, that, that wasn't enough to change. (laughs) <laughs> change things in in some parts for some politicians, for some policymakers, some parts of the country, and some of that I think is that they thought that it was only those people over there who were dying, who were getting sick. Right, it right. Became very easy to racialize this and to and to um, to to see that it was a disease, a pandemic of, of people of lower socioeconomic status, and a, a pandemic of people who weren't white, and a you know a pandemic of people who lived in blue cities, and and, uh, and the policy got you know made made there. Um, and even in even in the Bay Area, even in California, where things broadly seem like they're actually doing, you know, we're doing okay. Um, still, it was the places, the few remaining places where there are people of color in San Francisco that got hit the hardest. It was still the the you know the lower socioeconomic the people of lower socioeconomic status that got hit the hardest, even here,
0: yeah you know, we really yeah, we really told on ourselves in in a sense of how quickly that discussion moved towards the, again, a sort of false binary of deciding you know, between life or economic health. And I was thinking, even as you were talking, that, that there's good sort of historical analogies to reach for. They're not that far away. The September 11, Victims Compensation Fund, for example. I mean, if that was the philosophy, it's like, look, the overriding imperative is we have to keep the economy going or everyone's going to suffer for a generation. We're sorry that's the case. And we're going to come up with a structure so that we'll actually compensate people and families if this state policy actually results in death. It's not like we have never thought about ways to do that. I mean, Ken Feinberg uh, has become a sort of, you know, the um, uh, kind of the, the headline always, you know, as a guy who's sort of shown how you can do this in a public. Not everybody agrees that the answers he comes to are correct or even morally defensible. But there they are. But no, it stopped before we got to that level of discussion of justice.
1: And the thing that um, I, I'm actually kind of hopeful about this part of it, um, maybe against, maybe this is my own naivete speaking. But when when, when you would have this conversation and say, well, look, we spend this much money and we, we do and we save this many lives or we don't save that many lives. And people would say, oh, look, you know, um, 30,000 people die every year on American roads. And we think that's OK and uh so you know we don't spend more money we don't you know put speed governors on cars we don't have automated speed tracking we don't uh we don't put in more safety measures we don't regulate the size of the new two and a half ton crossover suvs so that they can see kids in front of all that we don't do any of those things so why should we do it and you know my ranch is like yeah we should do those too
0: i know know, i'm always the guy in the back who's like but wait i'm actually for (laughs) that too
1: yeah, that'd be a good idea. And in fact, the only reason that there are safety measures on highways and in cars is that back then Eisenhower made a public health. Or I think Eisenhower. Eisenhower do I have that right? I remember that made a public health case then, yeah. for you know seatbelts and guardrails and all that kind of stuff. Like that. That was it. Was a public health argument at that point too. And we just and 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 some were like, well, you can't. I mean, surely you can't privilege public health over. I'm like, well, I mean. Can we talk about that? Maybe we should talk uh, about it.
0: Yeah. Those of us who grew up riding around with no seatbelt on in the <laughs> yeah. back seat of a car with a person driving who was smoking uh, in a car, it's like, yeah, the world has changed. It's possible. Um, but pitting, you know, common sense, I think what you and I are describing as common sense public health measures against economic performance is is one way also into into sort of exploring the weird federalism, which has come to light throughout this entire process, too. And what I mean by that is, like, um, the at, at story after story comparing Florida and California. Just to come back to this, it's like, yeah, see, like, like COVID has once again showed us the unique, you know, genius of the founders and the creating of you know federalism as a structure where the laboratory of democracy is at. And and I like, I, I'll go down the road with you on those discussions. But we have to take an honest look at how states have actually handled it. I mean, so I sort of wonder what you think about the Florida v. California uh, comparisons, because some people do that as a proxy. They're like, see, this is like Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis. This is like a future governor, you know, governor's future presidential aspirants. So let's look at these two states and that'll tell us actually which America is the America that we should follow. And they took very different approaches to lockdown, for example.
1: Right. I mean, my understanding is that the raw numbers are more in California's favor, I maybe, or maybe yeah. not have seen them in the last whatever little while.
0: Uh, unless they've changed in the last two weeks, it's it's on California's side.
1: Uh, and I, um, yeah. And I mean, you know, Miami's about to be underwater um, and they're not really doing much about that either. Uh, Whereas I suppose California could use some of that water and maybe California, like, I'm just thinking about the other kind of public health, public policy, commerce decision kinds of things that both, that both states do. Um, You know, I, I, how much the vaccine rates are higher here than in Florida, you know, Florida, the that, that sort of the equation of personal freedom with um, the ability to not have public health rules at all. Um, and to sort of roll them back. Like, you know, the, these are just sort of, these are not community, commun- community, community minded decisions. Um, and if the comparison at the end is like whose tourism came back soonest, you know, like which Disney facility opened first, that's sort of a weird metric. That's not, uh, that's not the first metric I would go to. And I, I, I don't know.
0: It's, a, yeah, but it, it really to me sharpens the, and to kind of get into an area you do a lot of reporting on, a lot of times people have seemed to want to have that discussion based in in a sort of statistical discussion. Like, let's get the data and we'll actually tell you which was the best public policy to follow. Lockdown for many months with intermittent openings and re-lockdown while we're following public health data or the DeSantis model, which is we were not going to lock down. We will lock down strategically a couple of different kinds of settings, like, for example, nursing home. But mostly the imperative is we've got to stay open because the ideological commitment is really strong. And I worry about that slippage from things that you can maybe prove with data, maybe, to things that you absolutely should not try to prove with data, which is the content of people's ideology and commitment to unprovable things.
1: Well, so it's possible to imagine some counterfactuals here. Where you could say, were there other things to do besides a total lockdown? Yes, and but did anybody do the science to figure out which of those things we should do? No, they didn't let that happen either. So if you say to me, like, here's the thing that would have been cool to test if there was if this was ethical or possible to do, it would have been cool to test. Um, uh, total lockdown of congregate living of congregate living settings, and total lockdown of hospitals, and um, and heavily enforced OSHA type rules for ventilation and masks and PPEs and real PPEs. Like everybody gets N95s, and in places where you like the sort of classic meatpacking plant scenario, places that are cold and dry, you know, and people are working in close quarters, everybody gets a full gets PPEs. And, uh, and like, also we're going to, um, close schools for a while. And then we're going to reopen in some kind of staged way. like, I'm, I'm making this up. Right. But like, okay, that like, you know, California kept supermarkets open and everybody had to wear a mask in them. And I don't think any of them were super spreading events. I don't, I, now maybe the people who worked there, because they're the ones who were most vulnerable as people were coming in and out, like, okay, we should have given them like respirators, you know, maybe, and, and put in airproof. Like maybe there was a way to do it. But we didn't try it. Nobody tested any of those things. There weren't, and I don't know if it would be even possible to, to AB test that sort of stuff, but that's not what we did. Similarly, we also didn't do like super hardcore six-week. Everything closes for six weeks. As soon as we have community spread, everybody stays home for six weeks and we just pay for everything. Nobody, We're going to spend six weeks and nobody pays rent. Nobody right. pays mortgages. Nobody has to work. We're going to deliver food. Everybody's going to have all the food and water they need. We're not going to off anybody's power, but for six weeks, you just have to stay home, everybody. Just stay home. We didn't try that either. You know, so it was like, are these even half measures? I don't even know what the fraction is of these measures to figure out who did the public policy right here, because because nobody was doing those those policy evaluations. And to the extent that the criticisms that are getting leveled now, I think many of them rightly against the CDC, for example, which like made mistakes and also wasn't allowed to do things that it used to be able to do. That is a complicated situation. Like that would be those would have been things you you know you wanted to hear, but instead, like instead my my family was expected to make decisions about our own personal risk right you know and I was probably better informed than most Americans by dint of my job doesn't mean I knew everything doesn't mean I was right about everything but I, that terrified me every day that terrified me <laughs>
0: Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Adam Rogers, uh, writer for Wired Magazine, and the, we got off and running uh, here fast. And I, I really appreciate that and was looking forward to that uh, aspect of talking to you. I, I wanted to circle back to something, um, which uh, I've been asking guests who are based in North America, if they wouldn't mind sharing their strongest memory of associate, or association over the last 17 months. And I, and particularly as a person who, I mean, you're helping shape the narrative in your in your reporting. Um, I think you are keenly attuned to the many different acts of the pandemic, so maybe there's not just one, but I'm interested to ask you this, this question and just remind you that we talked last on March 22nd, 2020, and at that time, there were 869 deaths from COVID in the United States.
1: I find myself... Um I find that I am surprised by the it, this, is this pure emotional response that I have to hearing you read those numbers at the top of the show and hearing you say that just now. Um, uh, uh, of how difficult that is. I, I my, some of my memories are probably are too self-centered. You know, I was, I was very fortunate through this as a, as a matter of personal privilege as a knowledge worker. I, I went home. You know, I sat in front of my computer, my screen. I didn't, I was not as at as much risk as many people were. And um, so my memories tend to, are going to be small bore. I don't have any of the real apocalyptic stuff in my head because I, I, I avoided it. I have a couple of little little things. When we, I was also on the on the group in my office that was trying to make decisions about what we were going to do in the office. Well, not just, you know, not the reporting part, the editorial part, but so with a couple of managers and me, because I was covering the, covering the thing for science in early 2020. And, and so, you know, we had the meeting where where I finally said, I, I, I am sorry to sound like the character in the movies that all of us go see all the time who always says this kind of thing, but you need to send everybody home. This is now out of hand. This has become what we were scared it was going to become. You got to send it. We got to all go. You got to send everybody home. We got to figure out how to do it. And, you know, we were in office at that point that still most of the print magazine was still produced on paper that got passed around to people. Proofs got got passed around from editor to editor, marked up. And like nobody knew how to not do that yet. You know, we just sort of didn't have the basic, the very granular basic ways to like put out, to, to, to make the product that my organization makes, you know. Um, I'm, that I'm that one I feel pretty keenly. that and then the moment when we left when I packed up my stuff and looked around you know my office where I've worked I've been at wired for 18 years so it's half more than half of my professional life and um you know and I looked around that office and at that moment thought we're never coming back we're just never that's it this was it this was the thing that we have been scared of and warning about for 20 years people on on my desk you know whichever desk that was we've been saying also by the way we got to worry about a pandemic and now like here we are in it um and that you know those are those those moments were big for me because they they represent i think the transition into a new into a change because so much of that you know people talk about not how time became so strange for all of us and how it was hard to remember things and and, and because then it became so homogenous for me. Um, the work, you know, I remember the articles, but like, I don't remember any of the context or any of the things that happened. Somebody asked me earlier today, what other important scientific uh, breakthroughs, discoveries, you know, what other science happened in 2020? It's like, I don't remember. <laughs> this is my, you know, yeah. it's my professional. And I'm like, it's just sludge in my head because of it, all it is is just like fear generalized risk and then, you know, and following the numbers and watching the Johns Hopkins yeah. num- dashboard numbers climb.
0: Do you have some kind of, I mean, thank you for sharing that memory of being in the space where you where, and it's interesting you reached for a sort of cinematic metaphor, because I think that's what a lot of us had to reach for at that moment and uh, to try to build some narrative structure out of something, yeah. which to me was horrifying do you have a similar kind of association with re-entry? Or are you even there yet?
1: We've been working on what our process is going to be to come back to the office, like so many other places are. Um, I think, uh, but I, these, are, these are prosaic. I feel bad about how prosaic these memories and moments are for me. I always think that when people say, like, it was like a movie, that that's actually very distancing thing I, it makes me uncomfortable i mean and i'm a big science fiction fan and i love movies and grew up going to them all the time and stuff so but when i was like it was like being in a movie like no the movies were like being in this this is the yeah. thing they were actually right about how this was going to yeah. feel yeah 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 um you know so like my moment getting the you know getting my vaccination shot like and knowing that it was some super high tech you know brand new technology that they've been working for 30 years they finally got it to work and it was this thing that worked way better than anybody was expected it would and that it they developed it you know the at warp speed that they actually use that metaphor. Right. Like, I was like, that's amazing that that happened. Mm-hmm. That, that's the, <laughs> I was doing a thing on, 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 among the dumb recurring jokes I do on social media. One of them was like today's most cyberpunk moment. <laughs> um, Cause it was stuff like, you know, what the Hong Kong protests looked like before that came to where they're at now. Right. And, and the, but the, the thing of like, I just got, in my shoulder, an injection of like a genetically engineered, you know, the, of, you know, encapsulated in, uh, with synthetic bases in the, in the mRNA encapsulated in a nanolipid bubble. And for me, cause I'm just old enough, got that shot right below my smallpox vaccination scar and thought, well, that's, I mean, what, that's like that world, Paolo Bacigalupi, the science fiction writer, um, who mostly, who's mostly written about a post climate, climatically apocalyptic world, um, but in the in his worlds in his books, there's still a lot of real incredible technologies, amazing futuristic stuff. And I asked him about that once, and he said, "Oh, we'll always be clever monkeys." <laughs> well, the monkeys will always stay clever. That doesn't it just doesn't guarantee we'll get out of this. Okay, you know.
0: Adam, you're the first person I've heard describe uh, this idea of a sort of human geography of the history of vaccination and the placement of that's the first time I've heard that that described that way. That's really, it's really provocative to think of that sort of mapping out a history, literally in the spot on your arm where you had one generation of fear and response. And then this one they're having now. And, and I really appreciate that juxtaposition too, where, what we were describing earlier Really the depths of cravenness and the degree to which misery can be weaponized for political gain Alongside this other experience, which I think we have to Be honest about which is just astounding What can be accomplished to save lives? Millions of lives ultimately probably Um, And it did it wasn't a one-year it was like you said it's a long It was a longer path than people realize but Mm -hmm. the fact that it could come to fruition so quickly um, I think it's, we've got to spend a lot more time just sort of appreciating how that process came about as well. And that's something you've been writing, writing about. Maybe we can, there's a couple of things I want to make sure we get to, um, but maybe we can take them in a slightly different order. I want, I want to talk about lab leak, uh, theory with you, but, but since we are on vaccination, um, and you've been following it very closely, what are some of the things that, so you wrote about vaccine trials, uh, you've covered that very closely. You've also been writing about vaccine hesitancy and the problem of understanding the statistical world of vaccine efficacy. I don't know. I, let's talk about some of these things. Maybe pick up anywhere anywhere you'd like um, in terms of you know what's been taking up your mental space on trying to explain the world of mRNA and, and COVID facts.
1: I've really been struck over the last year. This is something that I Uh, My academic interest, even when I was an undergraduate, was in how science works as well as what science does, you know, what how science knows stuff, you know, and how we tell people that we know this and we don't know this and what uncertainty is and how you um, how you can develop a system that you can test ideas and be pretty confident that when you get an answer, that it's a right answer until the next right answer comes along. And and I really so I was already predisposed to. be thinking along those lines when when I started covering COVID and the, the the different the reason I bring this up is the difference between the way the vaccine trials went and the way drug trials therapeutic trials have gone, um, especially in the United States, uh, because 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 it, it's a virus there were no drugs available as a new virus obviously and antivirals are a real problem they're hard to make and they don't really work that well so the so all eyes turned toward repurposing other drugs at the very beginning of the of the pandemic. Um, which led to, you know, what I thought were reasonable optimism about convalescent plasma, hopes for monoclonal antibodies, um, the the idea that hydroxychloroquine was going to be useful, which had potential, but then petered out very quickly, I think, but then still kept in the public attention for a lot of different reasons, and then things like remdesivir, this very expensive antiviral drug that had a strange testing, strange life in um, in tests. Um, That it just we just didn't because we're kind of bad societally at testing drugs because we trust companies to do it and because there's a lot of financial interests we just didn't really get a lot of like we still don't really have good drugs, um to deal with uh to deal with COVID nineteen and it took these really huge pragmatic randomized controlled trials that they were able to set up in England which had its own kind of disastrous COVID response except for these trials this recovery trial that that like automatically signed people up as they came in through the national health system and figured out, like, this drug works, it's cheap, we're going to use it. And it transformed the course of the pandemic before the vaccines were available. Finally telling people with confidence, yes, dexamethasone, cheap steroids are good, not bad, for helping mm-hmm. people. They will help people survive. And they did. That made a huge... That's like, you know, those guys saved, hundreds, saved millions of people yeah. on the on that trial. and, and, and But meanwhile, almost every trial for a drug, for a therapeutic agent against COVID, not only did the trials fail, but they were, the way they were designed, they were never going to show anything anyway. The vast majority of them were just methodologically, um, they were really good for a researcher to get a grant and do the work and publish a paper, which is an important part of how science works in this country. I'm not even criticizing that necessarily, but they just weren't designed to provide any results about which drugs would work against a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, these very carefully designed public-private partnership vaccine trials, um, where they were registering tens of thousands of people, um, worked really well for those first set of vaccines. Uh, They meant that it was harder to get people in if you were late to get into the trial. So the new Novavax vaccine that just um, looks like it might be on the way to approval, you know, had a harder time signing people up. But it just became very difficult to do the science that we needed to do because of the structures, because of the systems of how science how. Bio, how biomedical trials drug trials get done with people it became very hard to do the science we needed so that that really struck me about how hey, like we got to vaccines but we still have very limited you know drugs to use and then you know that and you alluded to this a minute ago that that um ran smack into the existing uh anti-vaccine sentiment vaccine hesitancy in the united states and a lack of access to these very expensive finicky you know, high-end new technology vaccines, um, and all those things swirled all together to make it very difficult to vaccinate the numbers of people that we that we needed to because we sort of didn't prepare for that part. We didn't do same as all we didn't do the public health part. Did the did the did the drug design and drug development part, but not the public health part as well.
0: Just to pick up on some up there, and I'm in I'm in South Korea where the vaccination um, it's actually picked up speed a lot in the last month, but I'm I still haven't been vaccinated, and so to have left the United States when the winter wave was still very much underway, literally be afraid of going to the airport and arrive here where infection control is both an art and a science, um, and but not have access to vaccine and everybody I know back in the States be vaccinated. Um, that's been a very strange experience. And to, and to see things like, and some things you do see more clearly when you're away, I have to say, the governor of Ohio, basically giving, you know, full ride scholarships if you'll jump into a lottery. Um, And you wrote about this sort of vaccine lottery, which when I first saw those, they really disappointed me. I mean, my first thought was, wow, this is where society is. You have to give big (laughs) cash prizes to get people to literally protect their lives and the lives of their loved one. But actually, you went much deeper in this piece and discovered some things about sort of, you know, behavior risk and behavior that I didn't know. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. This fascinated me because I I felt like you, I was like, well, that can't work. We got to do the running man. That's what we're we're doing. This is going to be terrible. I thought like, obviously says I, the rationalist, what you really want to do is just tell people if you come in and get vaccinated, we'll give you 50 bucks, right? Here's $50 come get your vaccine that, I mean, clearly that would work on me 50. I mean, I went, I was desperate to get it right. But like, come sure. get Yeah. 50, of course. And, and like, take, keep in mind saying like, okay, look, you know, there's this group of people who are anti-vaccine and they're never going to come in and get vaccinated. And there's the, but, and there's a group of people who are, you know, who have some very reasonable hesitancy to get to engage with the, the federal biomedical establishment, you know, in, in the United States, black people have, you know, time and time again, been the been victimized by unethical biomedical practices um and so you like yeah i i get it (laughs) there's a there's some reasons to distrust this but then there's these other groups of people who like maybe you could convince them just if you can get them off the dime and it it turns out that in in behavioral economics they've been thinking about this kind of problem a lot is how do you get people to do a thing that's good societally that you want them to do from a policy reason but they just kind of won't because it's a little bit of a pain in the tuchus essentially. And, right. um, and it turns out that you can, there's, so there's a famous book called nudge. There's a new edition of it coming out this summer by um, Richard Thaler Nobel prize winning economist and Cass Sunstein who now works for the Biden administration. And they both said, they said like, look, if you just make it sort of easy and make it fun and, and remind people in, in kind of the, the most useful and interesting ways that will move them toward doing the policy thing that you want them to do. And, and so I talked to Thaler about this and he said like, this is the make it fun thing. People, um, you know, a a, a hyper-rationalist University of Chicago economist would never buy a lottery ticket because it's not even worth the paper it's printed on. But people, normal humans, overvalue that ticket because of the possibility of a life-changing prize at the other end of it. And at which point, you know, I, again, the rationalist who'd been covering this for a while says, like, isn't the life-changing prize not getting a deadly pandemic disease? Right, right. The answer is no, because people don't, don't calculate their own risk that way. People, people think, about their future as being more like, they think bad things aren't going to happen and right. good things are. Um, it's one of the reasons it's hard to get people to buy insurance. It's hard to get people to save for their retirement. It's hard to do all these things that if you do nudge things, if you kind of play it, it's, one iteration of sort of things so of this is a gamification thing too, is making it into a game. You can actually make them save more. If you say, we're gonna give a $1,000 to the person who saves to, to one person who saves this much over the next year. And one of the people who invented that idea for banking was the main consultant on Oregon's um, mm-hmm. vaccine lottery. Uh, and so, the, the, the and, the, and when they tried it in Ohio, they, they had, at least initially, they had a lot of success. It's not clear whether there, it was a success that they wanted now. They didn't, most places in the US haven't seen the N shaped curve that they were hoping for a right. vaccine uptake. Um, but in, at least in Ohio, it did for the first couple of weeks, it it showed a lot of success. And they also got a lot of free media for it. So they didn't, the amount of money that they spent on giving away, you know, $5 million for the prizes, they got like five times that money in terms of how much airtime they had for for giving people vaccinations and telling people to come in. And I'll say too, the funniest thing to me about, funny, I don't mean funny, I don't mean funny, haha. I mean funny, I'm crying inside, um, yeah. about Ohio is that at the same time, they were coming up with this really interesting, they were first out of the gate with this really interesting approach to try to get people off the dime and come in and get vaccinated. They were, the Republicans in Ohio were also working on getting rid of vaccine requirements in schools and stuff and making it so that they didn't have to vaccinate anybody if you don't want to get vaccinated. So taking away all of the mandates and turning and trying to replace that with incentives, you know, which is a really interesting policy conversation mm-hmm. on a lot of levels, because to an extent, like, um, you know, what's some of the, some of the American societal thing happening is that, is like, you can't mandate that I do anything. You can't tell me that I have to right. do anything. So how do you, if you can't do that, if you can't require people say, like, you can't come in this building without proving you're vaccinated. Sorry. That's just the way it is. You don't have to come in the building, but like, you're not coming in here without a vaccination passport. Um, right. we don't like to do that. Americans freak out about that. Policymakers don't want to do it. They, it terrifies them because it makes people do something they maybe kind of don't want to do. Um, whatever the thing itself is. So you have to figure out some other way to get there. Now, the, I, I will say too, what w- probably from an ethical perspective, it might be better still to have just made it much, much easier for people to get vaccinated rather than try to convince them to go somewhere an hour away or whatever to just have like the vaccination ice cream truck right. go up and down their streets and give them the vaccine. Um,
0: yeah, I think, cause I, and I worry a little bit, uh, thanks for explaining that, and that because that gamification piece, I mean, those are all really interesting. Um, And actually show, you know, the the cognitive bias towards optimism is really strong. I mean, people just, most people, um, I think, just generally think, even if they acknowledge the bad thing is out there, they're still like, but it's it's probably not going to be me. And if it is me, and I had friends tell me this, they're like, yeah, I might get it, but I'm I'm young and healthy, I'll be fine. You know, so there's a lot of optimism layered within optimism, I think. But there is maybe a little bit of a dark side there to that gamification. And you started to talk about it a little bit. Because can't that become a rationale to say, yeah, let's just get rid of all mandates.
1: Sure. Or uh, conversely, doesn't it then become like, oh, we're going to give, you know, we really want people to pay their taxes. (laughs) So one lucky person, you don't have to pay your taxes. You send your tax and we're like, nope, you're good. You don't have to pay your taxes for the next 10 years, you know, or something like, like, does that become a a governing principle? And if it does, is that okay? It it says something about what um, like the values of the society that, that does that versus, uh, you know, making it just really easy. Well, here's an example. At the same time, we're making it harder in many states to vote in the United right. States. So, like as a policy matter, you would think that everyone could agree that it's a, a net policy benefit for as many people to vote as possible. And that the way you do that is not by saying one lucky voter will win a million dollars. The way you do that is just by making it really, really easy to vote. But instead, we're going the opposite direction in a lot of states here, especially the ones run by Republicans, to make it more difficult. Because they know that that really does keep people from voting. It's the opposite of this, of this problem.
0: So another part of the problem is just explaining... So for those who might be interested in consuming some data to make a decision about the vaccine or which one maybe they could get or at what stage they want to receive it, I think that those are all real. You know, Vaccine hesitancy is, I think it's a phrase that hasn't served us very well because it's a very wide spectrum of what that might, might mean. But you dove also into some of the problems of just explaining the stats behind a term like vaccine efficacy.
1: This is a thing that the people who study vaccines and epidemiology argue about, have argued about for a long time, well before COVID. Um, when when the like when the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines results started to get presented, and and we were told like 95% efficacy um, for I guess for the first one for Pfizer, I guess, and and there there was this sort of rush of people saying like, oh, I'm 95% less likely to get it. Or oh, I'm that means it. I used to be 100%. I was going to get it. Now it's only five percent that I'm going to get it. Or it means that five out of 100 people will get it, but it used to be that all 100 people will get it. You know, like what? And it doesn't mean any of those things. <laughs> you know, the number that they get the eff the efficacy number is the relative risk reduction between people who get vaccinated and people who don't. So people who got vaccinated were 95% less likely, you know, to get. The disease than people who didn't get vaccinated in those compared groups but but that doesn't take into account what the risk was initially right that the, or rather it does like that depends on what their risk was initially and usually that risk was pretty low right. because depending on which group you're testing and so some of the vaccines that were tested if you were testing vaccines on populations in south africa their risk was higher than if you were testing them on like you know a population in the california bay area and that so that changes what kind of risk that changes the the nominal efficacy, effectiveness, usefulness, how good the vaccine is. And and one of the main reasons that like a drug maker won't use absolute risk reduction is that it's a smaller number. It doesn't look as impressive because most people's risk, because overall the risk of people getting COVID in the United States was for like, if you average that risk out over everybody, low. That was much higher. And then you had the risk of, well, if you get it, are you going to get really sick? If you get really sick, are you going to die? If you, you know, it, are you going to transmit it to somebody else? If you get it, don't get that sick. Are you still going to have symptoms six months later? There were things that, that we still don't know. that scientists still don't know about what, you know, what happens if you get COVID. Um, and somehow we were supposed to build all of that into a 95% efficacy number and to understand those statistics. So I think for, you know, for me, what I started, what I, I would err on would be to say, we should be much clearer. We should find much clearer ways to explain to people um, what these risks and benefits are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there was a, a um, one thing that they did, a group that looks at vaccine risks uh, out of Oxford in England did a thing, mostly for policymakers where they did the numbers where they said, okay, well, cause they were looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was, which had an association with, and it seems like it's, this association seems pretty strong, but it associated with um, a a weird blood clotting, a very rare, but weird and dangerous blood clotting disorder. And so they did these numbers that showed like, okay, here's how many people you have to vaccinate and out of 10,000, here's how many people you would vaccinate to avoid that same number of people in intensive care units and emergency rooms, separated out by age, by demographic, and then separated out by their risk level too. So it was the difference between the extremes would have been like very young people in a place where there was very low, where the infection rate was very low versus like people who were 75 somewhere where they're, where they're, you know, in Manaus, where they were, where the infection rate was really high. And so when you, when you do all those numbers, then like it becomes very clear that there are some places where it's very, very good to get vaccinated and some places where you can go, Oh, actually, you know, maybe it's okay here the risk benefit doesn't really work out this way for this particular vaccine, right? Again, it was the vaccine that had this particular side effect, not all vaccines do. Um, but 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 then we also ask, you know, individuals to make that decision for themselves somehow, instead of right. giving them the recommendation. And that's really, that you know, that's super hard because that also gets at the individual person's values as well, because if you tell them like, your risk is very low, and even if you get sick, your risk of getting very sick dying is really, really low. And that person, some, for some people, they'll say like, great, then I'm not going to get vaccinated. And you say, oh no, no, wait, sorry. I didn't, but I should have said, even if that's true, you can still infect other people. Right. And then, you know, okay, well, what then does that person say next? Does that person then say, oh yeah, that, well, good point. That'd be terrible. I don't want to do that. Or like, yes, I have an immune compromised person in my household. So I should do that. Or do they say not my table?
0: you know? I mean, it just speaks to the 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 kinds of conversations I know are going on in public health offices around the world and in the United States to try to pick up every aspect of what you were just talking about and have a communication strategy for different kinds of users. I mean, to give a sort of, you know, 95% effective, and I understand why you would want to, you know, kind of use those numbers and they seem to translate well, you know, to different kinds of populations, but I'm interested at that other, that absolute risk reduction to say that you have a low likelihood of something happening and that it's going to change your risk level, which was already low to slightly lower. I, that that should be a valuable piece of information to people though, I think. And I, and I wonder like why it isn't. And again, I'm a weird control group here because like I'm hypervigilant about this kind of stuff, but I, I wish we could, I'd like to know more about how we get to where we can talk to people about those things and have them value it because this entire episode has been a black swan event and it's real and i
1: i also what i don't know how to um what i don't know how to do i I really don't i'm at a loss about this is to say okay well i i am let us pretend the ceo of a no i can make it more concrete I run Houston Methodist hospital system. So then I say like, you know what? Your personal values are not at issue to me here. Everyone gets vaccinated here because otherwise other people are gonna die. People who don't get to make that choice are more at risk of death. And I can't allow that because I were in a hospital. And so if you don't wanna get vaccinated, no hard feelings, but you can't work here you know or like you can't come into the office you know we uh, you know c- can you say that yeah legally you probably can but people are people don't want to do because the values are there's the that community value and obviously you don't want you know you don't want covid in your space at all but there is an infringement on on an individual liberty there i guess i you know after every major public health catastrophe Of the past several centuries, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, public health laws get strengthened in Europe and in the United States, for sure. Um, To the point where, like, you're allowed to quarantine people against their will for measles and stuff. You know, that's just that's legal. You're allowed to do that. After this public health catastrophe, there are places that are weakening public health laws, and that's that's an amazing political change. To say like, oh, they're they're making so you can no longer mandate masks in stores or something next time, and it, and it seems pretty clear to me that um, you know one of the things that I come away from the last year thinking about is that a, a virus doesn't a virus doesn't want anything, right? A virus is just a little bubble of genetic material. All it wants, all it does, is make more of itself. And a virus becomes a pandemic when the specific way that that virus makes more of itself fits really well into the way a society is structured. Mm-hmm. So this virus fit really well into the way our society is structured in a lot of different ways. And that, what that tells me, you know, it's called COVID-19 because it was first identified in 2019. That tells me that like, it's not a hundred years between respiratory pandemics at this point. You know, if we don't change the way the society is structured, you get COVID-29s or COVID-31s or whatever. And, you know, if we're not, you, if we' if we weaken the the systems that were already in place, much less the ones that weren't ready for it at all, um, that's that freaks me out.
0: I'm glad you put that in that historical perspective too, because I mean, I think we're gonna have to spend more time with this. it, it yeah, you know, these are reactionary times. but you know nineteen nineteen was a pretty reactionary time too. And you know, the polio uh, era was that was the height of the Cold War. I mean, you know, like we've seen pandemics, we've seen, you know, epidemics become pandemics in times in which there were serious societal fractures and plenty of racism, and craven politicians, this isn't the first time we've seen that. But somehow this time, it's resulting, as you said, in many politicians doubling and tripling down and, and saying, not only we're going to remove the things that we know save lives, I'm going to run for president based on that. (laughs) I don't know if we've seen that.
1: I'm struck with polio, there were actual vaccine catastrophes with polio. Totally, yeah. You know, like there were there were a couple, there were like particular versions of that vaccine that ended up with people getting sicker anyway, the vaccine-induced um, polio, par- paralytic poliomyelitis. And like that happened, there were things that went really bad, much more so than we've been, we've been so, it's not lucky because the science has been great, but we've been fortunate, I guess I would say, that the that the vaccine science for for COVID has worked out really really well. Even the even um, the 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 clotting disorders um, and you know uh, cardiomyopathies, rare cardiomyopathies, and teenagers and stuff. Even all those things, notwithstanding, given how many vaccinations there have been, these the small number of side effects have really been remarkable at a public health scale. Yeah. That polio didn't ha- didn't have that. They had some real problems with, with deploying polio vaccines, and they still were like, nope, everybody gets it because <laughs> right. come on, otherwise we don't have a. know, we don't have a society without this. It didn't happen. This doesn't seem to be happening this time. And I, the, the, the political, the, 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 uh, political allegiance having as a signifier, not believing in wearing masks and not, and I will say like, I screwed up on mask coverage early on too. Masks were a complicated thing. So I, you know, I understand complications there or like not, you know, the, 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 the close correlation between, uh, states and even counties that voted for Donald Trump in the last presidential election and their vaccination rates being lower. It's just astonishing to me of how you can build that in, that it becomes a personal philosophy, not just a political
0: philosophy. a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Wired Magazine reporter Adam Rogers today. And um, we're actually, we're almost up on time. I don't know how much more time you have, Adam. I did want to talk about lab leak theory. Are you okay to, to stick? Yeah, around no, let's minutes?
1: do it. I, I, unless As soon as I become boring, you should shuffle no, me no, off. are you kidding?
0: <laughs> no, I intended to start with that, but I can, I'm kind of glad that we kept it a little bit because we might've filled up 40 minutes just about that. But I, I want uh, you wrote a great piece um, among your articles, um, all of which I enjoy, but this one really hit the zeitgeist. The COVID-19 lab leak theory is a tale of weaponized uncertainty is the title. I'm just going to read a couple sentences from it, set it up. You wrote, if the virus that causes COVID-19 didn't jump from animals to people, where did it come from? Was it an animal virus that scientists collected for study and then accidentally released? Worse, did scientists do so-called gain of function research on a natural virus, making it more likely to pandemicize and then accidentally release it? Or even worse than that, did they try to make a bioweapon that got out accidentally? And the most worst, did they intentionally release a bioweapon? The truest answer is probably not, but maybe. So that was the many different, you know, sort of aspects of lab leak theory compressed into the best paragraph I've read, um, that sort of this bullion cube um, that we have to kind of dissolve a little bit and try to take the different pieces of it. So start anywhere you'd like, but I'd like to understand it, the theory, and then and then try to understand this phrase you're talking about, sort of weaponizing uncertainty, because that that's the phenomena that's related to the theory.
1: Yeah. Uh, so here's how here's how I'll preface this. Uh, people should figure out where COVID nineteen came from. That is a that is an important scientific question with scientific and political implications people should find out whether as has been the case with both other coronavirus outbreaks that have affected humans SARS-1 and MERS as well as the other coronaviruses probably that some some of which infect humans as well and with a, with with other pandemic diseases like Ebola and HIV it is probably the case that like them, there, was, there is some animal reservoir out in the world where the, where the animals get this virus and it changes in, over subsequent generations and is able to infect human beings through contact between the humans and those animals. That's how it has always happened before. Um, but uh, Wuhan, the city in China where COVID-19 was first identified, also has an Institute of Virology that studies these exact kind of viruses, because a lot of them exist in, in the wild in China, and because there are connect, there are contact between the wild and human beings in China, that is a either a coincidence or a scary thing that makes you go, well, okay, we should look into that. Did something happen at that lab? Yeah, we should check that out because if it if because it's good to know about how these zoonotic spillovers occur. That's from an animal to a to a human being, and it would be good to know whether lab safety needs to be improved around the world. Um, And it would be good to know whether something really bad happened at that lab in China. Um, Okay. (laughs) But it's really hard to find that out for a lot of different reasons. Um, It's really hard to take serological samples from all of the horseshoe bats in Asia, and probably kind of dangerous too. You maybe don't want to do that. Um, it's, and, and, you know, it took years to figure out, they still don't know what the animal reservoir is for Ebola. It took a really, really long time to figure out an animal reservoir model for HIV. I think for SARS, they know what the intermediate is, but not what the nominally, probably a bat species is. Um, it's very difficult to do this kind of science and it takes years. It's even harder to try to figure out whether this is a virus that spent any time living in a lab before it got out into a human population. Um, you could hope, for example, that there were there is a serological library of timed samples of everybody who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that you could then look at and see if you could find antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 as we understand it today. Now there could also be cross-reactivity to other coronaviruses, which they were also studying in that lab. So that wouldn't be certain, but it would be interesting. You could do timed serology with every every hospital in Wuhan, let's say and try to figure out, like, oh, okay, well, did, were hospitals seeing cases before this? Like, there was some. there's some intelligence that says it's, and nobody really knows if this even really happened, but there's some intelligence that says a few researchers who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology got so sick with something that had coronavirus-like symptoms that they had to go to the hospital. That's a little bit weird because people go to the hospital rather than their individual doctors, as we, as we sometimes do in the United States, you go to the hospital for treatment at different levels of symptomatology, plus they were studying other things, plus, sh- I'm shocked, shocked to hear that people got sick during flu season, um, you know, in a place of work. So it's hard to know what to make of that. But yeah, you should follow that up, sure. Or follow up the people who got sick from the cave where they were studying bat virus or something, you know, figure out what what the, so you could try to figure out what the molecular biological distance is, the evolutionary distances between the early samples and the ones that now have been just recently in a paper reconstructed that were deleted from a gene bank Um, sequences to see if they're intermediate between the generations between a a distant relative of a bat virus and the virus that we see in human beings. You could try to do, you could try to do the epidemiology, I suppose, of people who were the original cases, the index cases in, in Wuhan. That's super hard because first, Wuhan is a mega city and has like giant train stations and a lot of highways and an international airport. And people transmit this disease asymptomatically. People will transmit the disease to each other potentially without showing any symptoms or before they start showing symptoms. Right. So it may be that somebody had contact and never even knew or transmitted the disease without ever knowing that they were sick. These are So it just made the scientific question very, very hard to answer. Okay. There is uncertainty right. built in. Okay. Then <laughs> there is also, uh, when I said that this was a case of weaponized uncertainty, as has been the case with other scientific questions of political import, like climate change or uh, safety measures in automobiles, like we were talking about on sure. the road, mm-hmm. or tobacco, secondhand smoke, or smoking cigarettes. Um, scientists will say, especially in the early days of studying these questions, that they're they're not sure. They're pretty sure. You know, that's what statistics are for, that you can have confidence intervals and you can say, like, this is, you know, within a certain range. We think it's probably this. Right. And in almost every other sphere of, of political life, certainly in the United States, saying I'm not sure means... Probably it's a chance there's something else or it means that you're lying or it means that you're evading or it means that you don't really know. And so we shouldn't really make any policy decisions based on what you're saying. And if you're especially motivated to be on the other side of whatever the scientific question is that you're trying to deal with, if you have a company that's making a lot of money doing something or if you're accruing a lot of political power by saying it's the other thing, then you can use that. You, and, and and people do time and again. That's what's happened in this country. And so so you end up with with the idea of the lab leak. You end up with a very important scientific question that should be answered. Right. Where did COVID-19 come from? And you end up with scientists saying, we still haven't answered that. You really do need to go answer that. And in fact, we're not happy with the way the WHO has tried to answer this. And it really does seem like the, the Chinese, especially at this lab, aren't telling us everything. That seems weird, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, that does seem weird. We should deal with that. But you also have people who are approaching this from the at the at the extremes from a perspective of disinformation of trying to make it right. seem like um, that that sometimes uh, unforced errors or good faith dumbassedness or mistakes or stuff that actually does look circumstantially like a problem is actually evidence of a deeper conspiracy, um, and it's hard to separate those things. Almost, almost impossible to separate those things.
0: So in that regard, I have. A real sympathy for people who are trying to understand, um, you know, what may have gone on in the lab. And like you, and I mean, I think that's, those are real important questions. What I've worried about though, is that I haven't seen, I've expected more robust discussion about that part of it to then say, and what the implications of even asking that question are, are for other labs in other parts of the world. And let's really talk in, in detail about that and to even have, you know, lab leak theory on the front page of newspapers for months, where serious people are really trying to dive into it. Um, and to, to see that, to, to hear more about the benefits of that, because the risks are the ones that you just played out, which is that people who are cynical are going to use that just as they use with climate change uncertainty as a way to see, see, scientists disagree. And until they agree, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to change anything. We're just going to sit back. And we're going to let things go exactly the way they are because we're not going to change the world if scientists are disagreeing. And, and so they're having to balance those two things. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who are basically, they know they're leaving the tent flap open for that kind of conspiracy minded stuff. And they're leaving it open because they have to, because they're trying to get to the bottom of something. Maybe I just felt like I haven't heard them articulate strongly enough the value of getting the answer.
1: Yeah. Uh, you're are what you are what you are rightly saying is okay but why do we want to know this can you tell me why we want what will we do when you know the answer what will you do with that precisely and, and and look if it's a zoonotic spillover then the answer is like oh we need to protect the wild better how about that like that would be great we need to make sure that the that the, the wildland urban interface it puts the wild at safety instead of making it a place where there are just wildfires and zoonotic spillover events. You know, yeah, good, okay, that, I, I, I buy that. We need to understand that gain of function research is actually too dangerous. We shouldn't do that. You know, Maybe that would be an answer. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is a thing you could say, you say like, look, you, you can't do this anymore with these viruses. I know we're learning a lot about how viruses work, but it's too dangerous because we can't keep a BSL-3 lab secure too many spillover events from labs. Hmm, okay. That's interesting. Good. I mean, scientists should know that, you know Um, we should know if there's secret bioweapons program someplace. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't know. That doesn't seem uh, I, how does that seem to me? That doesn't seem likely, but okay. Yeah. We should know that. There shouldn't be those. We should stop those if those exist, but we definitely shouldn't be asking this question so that we can, politically rehabilitate people who failed in the public health response over 2020. Cause I think I, I feel pretty good, even as a journalist trying to be fair and, 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 and to understand sort of a complicated issue, I feel pretty good about saying that our public health response in the United States sucked. Yeah. And that's because people screwed up. Um, I, I've been thinking about this actually. I'll, I'll say this about this too. Part of the the pandemic plan that the Trump administration effectively threw out didn't follow that that plan evolved from people thinking about bioweapons right right after after september 11th i know you know this after september 11th there were anthrax attacks in the united states and that the anthrax that was used was a was weaponized stuff. I mean it was it was the good stuff if you really want to make a good scary bioweapon. It was designed that it would expand through the air like it would it had electrostatic repulsion among the particles so that it would expand like a gas. I mean it was somebody made it, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody still to this day nobody knows who really. There are still, you know, their their ideas but it's not completely for sure. And um and in the bio in the biology community in the defense community That meant that there became a lot of money available to study bioweapons and the study response to them. So, people who were studying uh, respiratory viruses, especially, applied for grants that said, I'm interested in biodefense. And so, what they, and there were, you know, there were tabletop exercises and think tank studies that all were, were predicated on the assumption that the most, that the scariest thing that could happen would be a respiratory, a weaponized respiratory virus. And how would we respond to that? Wow. And the answer was everybody should have PPEs. We should have enough ventilators on hand. We should make sure that we understand the transmission mechanism of the disease so that we know if we need to have everybody wearing masks out in the world, we sh- you know, like it was all the stuff that became our pandemic response um, because it didn't really matter where it came from once there was a pandemic out there. Um, now uh, the, a big difference was that the assumption was that the, the weapon, the real weapon was going to be much more deadly than COVID-19 was. Right. It was going to be much worse, um, and much faster, much more transmissible. You know, in the way that we're scared of, rightly scared of, like a delta variant, but also have a much higher case fatality rate. Um, so that's one of the arguments that says this probably isn't a bioweapon because it's not—it's not good enough. You know, it doesn't—it's not scary enough. Um, that's an argument, but it's a circumstantial argument. Um, you know, if you want to look into the, what you'd want to do, I guess, is you'd want to look into the 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 genome of the virus and try to find um, evidence of somebody going in and snipping pieces out and putting in yeah, some piece yeah, that made it more right. transmissible. And the problem is that like, can you find evidence that looks like that? Yeah, but it can also look like a whole bunch of other things. Um, you just can't really tell whether it was something that people did or people did well. It's very hard to do that work. Um, and it doesn't leave the kind of evidence that's clear. But I do think that the, but, mm-hmm. like, this is the the part of the reason that we, think we know anything about how to deal with the pandemic is that we started, we proceeded from an assumption that said, well, what if it was intentional? What if it was a, a part of what now would encompass, I think, partially by the lab leak hypothesis? It, it, the, the, the fact is that this is one of those things that unlike secondhand smoke and climate change and vaccines, really, and, uh, um, and some other examples I can think of, um, where scientists did eventually have eventually come to some level of certainty that's fairly convincing you know they were able to make predictions about what kind of hurricane what would happen to hurricanes if climate change got worse and lo and behold that is what has happened to hurricanes in north america they were able to make predictions about what droughts and wildfires would look like and lo and behold that is what droughts and wildfires have looked like so you can say like yeah we think we're probably actually we're super right about that whole climate change thing and that means that that argument has now changed that argument has now moved on to like OK, you were probably right, but you can't really blame us for that because you're the ones who, you know, now it's personal responsibility. Why don't you all drive less? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But, but, but this thing, but, but for COVID, this lab leak thing, like it's going to, I think now maybe tomorrow there'll be new evidence. I, I, I don't know. Right. But I, but it seems like if you really do to, to do the kind of investigation that has to happen is going to take a really long time. And, And while that investigation is going on, that uncertainty remains. And the way scientists will talk about that uncertainty, as you say, opens the flap to the very different way that um, political opportunists um, talk about uncertainty.
0: Well, that, and I think it once again, it sort of underlines what we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation is the really high stakes for science communication and the ability for science communicators, scientists and, and science adjacent people like even like yourself and myself to To try to lay these things out in a way that people actually see that those stakes are really high, but that they may be ultimately worth it. I mean, I think we we do want to know the anthropogenic forcing factors of climate change. We want to know them quite specifically if we can. And we do want to know where COVID-19 originated and if a a lab had some role to play with that. Um, Yeah, I think we want to know that, too. I just really worry we're in a time where the longer you leave those uncertainties open, the more, you know, trucks get driven through, the more ideological trucks get driven through that opening. I'm I'm grasping from, I've had tents, I have trucks, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many different metaphors I can reach for here, but, and maybe that's just the, I'm a historian of science, so what I should say is there's always been that. Out there. And I do, and that's true. But I'm living through this moment. So this is the one that that scares me. So I'm a historian. I get (laughs) to say I know. I know it's been out there, but but this one's real. And I think it gets weaponized in ways we have not seen before with a speed um and with the impact that is measurable in terms of lives lost in real time. And we've seen that with COVID. People have died in of COVID because of misinformation, and they have died by the thousands, tens of thousands or more
1: you know, in the, I, 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 I wrote my, my COVID, my lab leak story. um, And it's a, you know, it's a takey story, right? It's an, it's an analytical story. There's not, there's just, there's me remembering what I know about having covered a lot of different kinds of uncertainty in science. I, um, there are reporters who, who, who went, who also wrote their, you know, their lab leak stories and talked to scientists on, who either were more kind of more or less convinced that it was either zoonotic spillover, you know, animal-human spillover, or that there was a lab involved, as you say. And in writing those stories and came down, you know, to varying degrees would say like, it still seems, there's still the scientific evidence is still vastly on the side of a zoonotic spillover and not something that leaked from a lab. There may be intelligence agency kind of circumstantial evidence that says otherwise, I feel like that's more questionable, but the science still, Says one way and, and reporters who have said that have been roundly attacked, not just by sort of trolls on social media, but by other reporters, um, you know, and and that that's kind of n- n- new. Um, like when when people when science reporters went out and said, actually, the science is pretty good on climate change. Well, no, you know what? I'm wrong. Actually, there were other reporters who would come back and say, no, that's not true. We still don't know. And in fact, it's some of the same science reporters um, this time around. So I I retract where I was headed. I thought I was on a good. <laughs> I thought I was to something there, but no. In fact, it's just um, it, there's there's some history repeating here with this. That's what struck me about it. And mm-hmm. you know, and maybe you know, maybe not. People will see this, and maybe I'll come, maybe I'll get blowback on this too for missing for being a, a, a um, as I was called after I wrote it, a useful idiot you know, and, a, and a, sh- a shill for CCP propaganda and, you know, maybe part of a deeper conspiracy. I don't think I'm any of those things.
0: Uh, well, we have a, we have an N of two here, but I think you are, I also think you are not part of that <laughs> conspiracy. Um, and... Again, again, it comes back to these again sort of levels of trust. Some of which are based in evidence, and some of which are just based in intuition. And the fact is, and this comes back to the vaccination trust issue. Um, if Donald Trump is at the front of a theory, I'm going to take my time with that. <laughs> trust but verify. Don't I uh, don't trust and also verify. But you know, the fact that he went immediately to, it's Wuhan, it's weaponized, it's China. Also, here's a bunch of other baggage around China that I have been carrying around for many years. It's just too simple.
1: And, and here, you know, here's something I think that's important about that too is that the uh, some of the you know media analysis and media meta analysis that that has gone on more recently has said, well, the press was way too fast to say that that was racism, um, and the you know that uh, the, the Tony Fauci was too, too was too too quick to say to imply. You know that that was just racism, and but I think you know um, there's a little bit of um, of misremembering there because that version of the lab leak hypothesis, that early one, was super racist. That one was just a knee jerk, um, you know, inscrutable Chinese cliche stereotype thing. Yeah, it was yeah, it was a it was, it was really freaky, you know, when he started talking about this. To have it come back around, to have the WHO come back with a report that wasn't completely satisfactory to some members of the scientific community. That's actually a different lab leak hypothesis. That's a new one. That's the one right. that says, actually, we don't know enough here. And, they see, and, the, and the Chinese government seems to be keeping some stuff from us that we don't really know what it is. And there's something that we don't get. So we should look into that more. That's different. You know, it's a, it's a different iteration of it. And conflating the two, I think is, this is me being defensive. Conflating the two, I think is unfair to the people, to members of my profession and elsewhere who called racism, racism.
0: You know, I you're think right. you're right. And it also speaks to the fact there's a sort of a meta lab leak, that thing that's, you. it's out there all the time. And it's, you know, Trump tapped into it, which is just like, I can score points on people hating China. So I'm just going to do that for a while. And that's different from this kind of real, I think, again, good faith attempt to try to get down to the bottom of whether or not there's a real lab leak, but it all gets smashed into yeah. one big story. Oh. Yeah. So... um. You've been very generous with your time and I've taken too much of it and you're probably on deadline, but, um, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you and, um, just on the way out, maybe you can just give a little teaser, like one or two themes that you think you're going to be following for the rest of the year.
1: Huh? Um, yeah, a little bit is the stuff that I was doing back in the before times. I'm probably going back to looking at some of the, some food science and alternative proteins and, Mm -hmm. um, Right. You know, I think I think I still the thing I want to stick with is some of the the um, how science works and how science knows things. Um, I really think that that's an important part of what we have understood and not understood for the last year and trying to tell people, here's how we know, here's how they know. And here's why I'm convinced, um, you know, to understand the methods. Um, of how science works and which ones, which methods are the trustworthy ones and which ones we should believe in. I feel like that's still, that remains important um, for all these different fields, not just for for pandemics, not just for disasters. And I think that's something I want to stick with.
0: Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be back on Monday. Felicia Henry will be back on Monday as a guest host. And I know you've caught Felicia for the last two weeks on Monday. So please do join me, join Felicia as your host uh, on Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank Adam Rogers um, for coming back to COVID calls and um, talking about these many things. And we'll, of course, stay tuned to your reporting and stay healthy out there. And it's good to see you. Thank
1: you, sir. You too. It's a pleasure.
0: Okay, everyone, stay healthy. We'll see you on Monday, 5.30.